Amen. Are you glad you came today? Amen. I want to take just a moment and thank the people who work behind the scene, in front of the scene, around the scene, around the children's fundraiser last night. Heard somebody say earlier, I thought I was just going to get two hard shell tacos and I opened it up and it was a meal. (laughs) Hey, we know how to eat around here. (laughs) Let me pray. Father, I ask you to pour your spirit out on this service this morning on each and every person that's here. I've watched how you work, and I know, Lord, that uh, people aren't here by an accident. Uh, They didn't even just come because they wanted to be here. God, you work through divine appointments. There are people here today that are hurting, that need you to touch them. There are people here today that uh, are lost, that need you to save them. There are people here today, Lord, that know you, but they haven't grown much in their walk with you. They need to grow. I pray that as you speak your word to us today, that God will hear everything you say, and that God will be moved closer to you, and that God will allow you to shape us more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ, who is our king. Thank you, Lord, for letting us be here. Do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to go back this morning for just a minute. And I want us to look specifically at what Jesus said in response to what Zacchaeus said to him If you remember, we talked about last week uh, what Zacchaeus said to the Lord. Uh, I know you remember that he climbed down out of that sycamore tree and he he came and he stood right in front of Jesus and he had some words to say to Jesus. Those words preface the fact that that particular moment was when he made a real heart decision to turn from his sinful way of life to then follow Jesus so that he could be the person that God wanted him to be. Uh, that's the same kind of decision that God is wanting many of you to make today. That is when he turned from his sin and himself, and he specifically turned to trust in Jesus Christ. It was a 180-degree turn that changed the direction of his life. This was a monumental decision that led to a radical transformation. Zacchaeus came to the point in his life where he wanted to be saved and no longer be lost. And it happened. Again, as I said last week, Dr. Luke doesn't describe the Lord's presentation of the gospel truth to Zacchaeus, nor does it give us his response. But the salvation of this man is clearly seen by the way his life was transformed. There are a couple of things that scripture bears out here in the text that Help us to know that Zacchaeus was truly a man that was saved. That his salvation was real. 
In verse 8, we, we can see that um, it, it was real because of the commitment that he made. The commitment that he made. Look at verse 8. It said, Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood there and he said to the Lord, I will give half of my wealth to the poor. Now, this guy was not, this guy was rich. He wasn't poor. He had a lot of money and he said, I'm going to give half of that to the poor. That's like some of you uh, getting saved and making a commitment to the Lord and say, I'm going to tie 10% of everything God gives me. That's a commitment. That's a commitment. He said, I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord, and, and if I've overcharged people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. In that transforming moment, Zacchaeus became a giver and no longer a taker. This was a radical change of direction for him to make. We, we also see it not only in his commitment, but we see it in the comment that Jesus made about Zacchaeus. In verse 9, Jesus said, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a son of Abraham. Jesus clearly said that salvation was going home with Zacchaeus. Listen, there's no better thing than a spiritual husband or a spiritual leader of the family can do than to take Jesus home to their family, right? Every man ought to do that. He also said that Zacchaeus had proved that he was now a true child of God. I, I shared with you uh, last week that the Bible is very clear when it says Zacchaeus was a Jewish tax collector that worked for the Romans. I mean, he was a hated man, but he was, he was a Jewish man. He, he had been a son of Abraham ethnically all of his life. He was Jewish. But in this moment, he had just become a true son of Abraham spiritually. Spiritually. Now, let me just say this. They are not the same thing. They're very different. You can be one and not the other. Or you can be both. It's like saying, you can be a church member and not be saved. Or you can be both. Listen to what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9 verse 6. He wrote, only some of the people of Israel are truly God's people. Only some of the people of Israel are truly God's people. It's like saying only some of the church are really God's people. Dr. Billy Graham said many years ago, that 75% of the people who have their names on the church rolls have never had a personal experience with Jesus Christ. 75%? That's a huge number. Is it possible? Could be. Look at what else he said in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. <clears throat> he said, For you are a true, you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents. Or because you have gone through the Jewish ceremony of circumcision. No. A true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. A true circumcision is not a cutting of the body, but a change of heart produced by God's Spirit. Whoever has that kind of change seeks praise from God and not from people. In other words, they seek to please God. Friends, being born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. 
Christianity is not transmitted genetically from one generation to the next. Becoming a Christian is a personal decision that you make. Not even being baptized will make you a Christian. You don't become a Christian by participating in a religious ceremony. To become a true believer, you, you have to experience a genuine change of heart. You, you have to turn from your sinful way of life and trust Jesus to make you right with God. It's just that plain. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he said this. He said, in the same way, Abraham believed God, so God declared him righteous because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. What's more, the scriptures look forward to this time when God would accept the Gentiles too on the basis of their faith. God promised this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, All nations will be blessed through you. And so it is. All who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. When Paul was writing to the true church, he said, So you are all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have been made like him. Now, the mistake is to believe that he's talking about water baptism here. He's not. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach salvation by physical water baptism. Salvation is by faith alone plus absolutely nothing else. Here in this passage, what Paul is talking about is spiritual baptism, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All believers share in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and that happens at the very moment you trust Jesus Christ to be the Lord and Savior of your life. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, again, Paul's writing to the church, and he says, The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up only one body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we have all become, we have all been baptized into Christ's body by one spirit, and we have all received the same spirit. Everyone who puts faith in Jesus Christ is baptized into the body of Christ and is clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Paul goes on to write these words in verse 28. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all Christians. He's writing to the church here. You are one in Christ Jesus. And now you belong to Christ and you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs. And now all the promises of God that all the promises God gave to him belong to you. Paul understood that. He grew up in that kind of environment. He grew up being a very zealous Pharisee who was very proud of his Abrahamic heritage, just like Zacchaeus would have been. But I want you to listen to what Paul thought about his heritage after his salvation experience. Listen to what Paul says here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4. He said, yet I could have confidence in myself if anyone could. If others have reason for confidence in their own effort, I have even more. 
For I was circumcised when I was eight days old, having been born into a pure-blooded Jewish family that is a branch of the tribe of Benjamin. So I am a real Jew if there ever was one. What's more, he said I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. And zealous? Yes, in fact, I harshly persecuted the church. And I obeyed the Jewish law so carefully that I was never accused of any fault. Look at verse 7. He said, and, and I once thought that all of these things were so very important. But now, now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. He says, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I may have Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own goodness or my ability to obey God's law, but I trust Christ to save me. Do you all hear that? He said, I trust Christ to save me. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Not on works, but on faith. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, he says, As for me, God forbid that I should boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of that cross, my interest in this world died long ago, and the world's interest in me is also long dead. It doesn't make any difference. Now, whether we have been circumcised or not, what counts? What counts is whether we really have been changed into new and different people. May God's mercy and peace be upon all those who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. Friends, that's what Zacchaeus became. He became a new child of God. He became a real child of God. He had been lost, but now he was saved. He was delivered from, from sin and death and hell. The Lord gave him life and light to believe and repent, and his conduct was transformed. Zacchaeus now belonged to the king. He belonged to the king of peace. Now I want you to look back with me at the last verse we looked at last week, verse 10. I want to look again at what Jesus said. These are profound words. What an anchor on this passage of Scripture. Luke 19, 10. Jesus said, And I, the Son of Man, have come to seek and to save those like him. He's pointing to Zacchaeus when he said that. I came to seek and to save those like him who are lost. Now, we know why Jesus came. He came to find lost people and save them, right? So that they would be free from the consequences of their sin. But why in the world did Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man? Why did he call himself the Son of Man? If you know anything about Scripture, you know that this was actually the name that Jesus used for himself more than any other name that he called himself. It's actually used 83 times in the Gospels and always by Jesus. Always. It is clearly a messianic title. 
Going all the way back into the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, in verse 13, the scripture reads, In my vision at night I looked, Daniel said, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority and glory and sovereign power, all peoples. All nations and all men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is a title that obviously speaks to the humanity and the humility of Christ. And yet at the same time, it speaks to his everlasting glory that he would one day receive. Jesus was a king. But you know what? If you were to walk by Jesus on the street in that day, you would have not known it. You would have never known that. He came as a humble king of peace. Unfortunately, that was not what the Jews were looking for. They weren't looking for that. Jesus is still not what a lot of people are looking for. How about you? What kind of Jesus are you looking for? Think about that. If you remember when Jesus came to earth, Israel was an occupied nation under the rule of uh, Roman authority. And they hated it. They hated the Romans. They, they hated Rome. Because of their forced subjection to Rome, they wanted someone, anyone, to come and deliver them from that bondage and from all of that oppression. And their hope was that, that God Messiah, God's Messiah would be the one to do that. But friends, that's not why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to overthrow the Romans and then set up his earthly messianic kingdom as the Jewish people were anticipating. It was not time for that. There would be a day for that, but this wasn't the time. He would certainly do that later on when he returns. Neither was it his goal to bring about social reform as the liberals wrongly believe. If that had been his goal, well, then he would have failed miserably to achieve it. But you know, and I know, that Jesus didn't fail in his mission, did he? His, his mission was a complete success. He accomplished everything that his father sent him to do. And this is what he did. Jesus came to offer salvation. Are you hearing me? He came to offer salvation to all who would confess their sinfulness and repent and believe in him as Lord and Savior. That's why he came. John MacArthur said the recent healing, and he's talking about this passage of Scripture we're looking at in Luke. He said the recent healing of the blind man and the salvation of Zacchaeus revealed Jesus to be the seeking Savior of the lost, as does the three parables that he told in chapter 15. But the Jewish people failed to accept his mission, and they clung to the hope of an earthly messianic kingdom. And even after the resurrection, his disciples were still confused. If you go back into Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 1, you'll see that Luke wrote in verse 6, When the apostles were with Jesus after the resurrection, they kept asking him this one question, Lord, are you going to free Israel now and restore our kingdom? Are you going to do that for us? That's what we want. 
Listen, because of who Jesus was and because of who he came to be, because it ran so counter to the Jewish messianic teaching that they'd always been taught all of their lives, they would not accept the Lord's teaching that the messianic kingdom would be delayed. They left Zacchaeus' house that day. I'm sure there was a celebration there. Man got saved, took Jesus home to his family. There had to have been a celebration there. But as they leave the house, with Jesus and the crowd nearing Jerusalem now, they're making that way. This crowd must have been expecting Jesus to go in and establish his earthly kingdom as they fervently longed for. They wanted their king. They wanted a king. They wanted him right now. They wanted their freedom. They wanted to be in charge of the world as a nation. In Luke 19, 11, it says these words. The crowd was listening to everything that Jesus said. They hung on everything, every word he spoke. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. The new American Standard Version translates it this way. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Their anticipation of this event happen, happening was growing with every step they took toward the city. And it, it's clearly suggested by the, the Greek verb that is translated as appear. The word appear is a nautical term that speaks about something that is visible on the horizon. You can see it up on the horizon. Jesus knew that the kingdom of God was coming, but it wasn't on the horizon yet. You see, there were a lot of things that God had planned that had to take place before the Messianic kingdom could be established. Two that come to mind the most. The first thing is that Jesus would be rejected by his own people. John chapter 1 verse 10. He writes, but although the world, he's talking about the people of the world. Although the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him when he came. Even in his own land and among his own people, he was not accepted. But notice verse 12. But to all who believed in him, that is the Greek word pistio, it means trust. All those who trusted him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. So the very first thing that would happen is that people worldwide would reject him, and especially those around Jerusalem. People are still rejecting him today. The second thing that I see is that after that, Jesus would be arrested, tried, crucified, and he would die and then be raised from the dead to provide a perfect sacrifice for our salvation. In the meantime, to correct their misunderstanding about his coming kingdom, Jesus created this story about himself to illustrate the delay in establishing his earthly kingdom. It's, it's all told for us right there in Luke 19 in verses 12 through 27. Not going to take time to read all of that. I'm going to give you some homework. You do that later. Right now, I want us to focus on verse 12 because I think it sets the stage for what we're saying here today. Luke 19, 12. Jesus said, a nobleman 
was called away to a distant empire to be crowned king and then return. Do you, do you see the picture there? Jesus is that king. He told that story about himself. And he went away to be crowned. On June 28, 1838, the coronation of Queen Victoria took place at Westminster Abbey with nearly 400,000 visitors flocking to London to witness this huge event. 400,000 visitors. One can only imagine the contrast between the coronation of the Queen of England and the King of the universe, the King of heaven. Queen Victoria rode in a very ornate carriage. If you were to price it, build it today, it would cost $4 million just for the carriage that she rode in. While Jesus, the King of all kings and Lord of all lords, rode a young donkey. Didn't even have a saddle. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9, we see a prophecy that is told. Rejoice greatly, he said, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, and yet he is humble. Riding on a donkey. Even on a donkey's colt. The people of Israel wanted a mighty warrior king to ride into Jerusalem on a big white horse followed by a massive army ready to do battle and able to conquer the Romans and to set their nation free. But that is not in keeping with the plan of God. Thus, the coronation of Jesus was simple, very simple. Nonetheless, he is. He was and he is God's true king. The king that we ought to be worshiping. Amen. Psalms chapter 2 verse 6. It says, for the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem, my holy city. This humble king of peace made his triumphant entry into Jerusalem as the anointed Messiah king in three simple phases. Beginning in verse 28, we see the preparation that was made for Jesus to enter into that city. It says, after telling this story, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. And they came to the towns of Bethphage and, and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. And he sent two disciples ahead. Go into the village over there, he told them. And as you enter it, you will see a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. Bring it here. If anyone asks you what you are doing, just say the Lord needs it. The preparation for Jesus, his monumental entry into the city as the Messiah was set in motion when he sent these two disciples ahead to prepare for the visit. The other, other gospels seem to point out that it was possibly Peter and John that were told to go there. He told them exactly what they could find and what they would experience. The specific details that Jesus gave 
them provided us with an undeniable illustration of the Lord's omniscience. That is, his ability to know all things. He told them that they would find a colt. A colt. A young donkey. Matthew tells us that Jesus said it would be tied next to its mother. Now, now Jesus had not been to this town before or recently, nor had he sent anyone there to make the arrangement. But he is God, so he knows all things, right? And he can also make all things happen. He tells them that this was going to be a cult that had never been ridden. You ever tried to ride something for the first time? I have. It usually doesn't go very well. Even if you got a saddle and a bridle. But he didn't have either. He even tells them that the owner is going to ask you, what are you why are you untying the colt? And he told them how to answer the man. Just tell him that the Lord has need of them. In verse 32 it says, So they, they went and they found the colt just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owner asked them, Why? Are you untying my coat? I can imagine he's saying, why are you stealing my animal? You know? But the disciples reply, the Lord needs it. Obviously, the man was in agreement with that. It's amazing what God can do to our heart. So they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their garments over it for him to ride on. Jesus entering Jerusalem riding on a colt was a specific fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy given through Zechariah. We read that a moment ago. Matthew records some words about that. said, this was done to fulfill the prophecy. Tell the people of Israel, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble. He is humble riding on a donkey, even on a donkey's colt. The amazing thing is that the first time Jesus came, he rode on this donkey. But listen to me, when he comes back, he's going to be on that big white horse. I promise you, he's going to be on that big white horse as the conquering king that he is. The second phase is the adoration given to Jesus, beginning in verse 36. It says, then the crowd spread out their coats on the road ahead of Jesus. And as they reached the place where the road started down from the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles that he had done. Try to imagine this little donkey bearing the weight of Jesus as he picked his way through the piles of clothing and palm branches on the road that led into Jerusalem the closer that he got, the louder the crowd shouted, acknowledging that Jesus was indeed this long-awaited Messiah. In verse 38, it says, Blessings to the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Matthew tells us that most of the crowd spread their coats on the road ahead of Jesus. And others, they cut branches from the trees and they spread them all out on the road. And they said, he says Jesus was in the center of the procession. And the crowds all around him were shouting, Praise God for the Son of David. Bless the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God in the highest heaven. And it says the entire city of Jerusalem was stirred. 
as he entered. Now, you got to read everything here because most of the people were happy that he was coming. They were excited and they adored him, but not everybody. And we find that in this third phase as you pick up in verse 39 and you see the condemnation of those who rejected Jesus. It says, but some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. As you can see, not everyone shared the joyful excitement of the crowd. Some instead were outraged. Some were extremely excited that he was coming. Others were just angry. These Pharisees demanded that Jesus silence the, the praise of the crowd. For thousands of years, the Jewish people had been waiting for this moment when God's anointed Messiah would arrive. And it happened and he deserved all the honor and glory and praise that man could give him, but that didn't happen. I want you to notice what Jesus says in response to the religious and political pressure that was laid to bear on him. Verse 40, Ronnie alluded to it earlier. It was on the screen. Jesus said, if they keep quiet, if they keep quiet, something that inevitably was going to happen, he said, if they keep quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. Now you got to understand this. On Monday, these people were praising Jesus. But by Friday, the same lips that praised him now cry out for his crucifixion. And Luke 23, verse 18. Said, then a mighty roar rose from the crowd. And with one voice, they shouted, kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for murder and for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government. A true insurrection, by the way. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus. But they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And for the third time he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death. I will therefore flog him and let him go. But then in verse 23... Luke records that the crowd shouted louder and louder for Jesus' death and their voices prevailed. There have been many Jews through the centuries that have accepted Jesus as Messiah that have become a part of his redeemed church. But hear me, the nation of Israel offers no praise to Jesus. I love the nation of Israel, but I'm being honest. They offer no praise to Jesus. Their silence has remained unbroken now for 2,000 years. And in this case, silence is not golden. It is condemning. MacArthur says the stones will not cry out in joyful praise to God, but instead in affirmation of God's judgment on Israel's wickedness. Oh, we like to think of God as a, a, a sweet, sugary God. But there's a wrathful side of God. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 11 said, The very stones and the walls cry out against you, and the beams in the ceilings echo the complaint. 
how terrible it will be for you who build cities with money gained by murder and corruption. Has not the Lord Almighty pronounced that the wealth of nations will turn to ashes? They work so hard, but it's all, all in vain. Being God, and that's who Jesus was, right? He was God. And because he had the ability to see the end and the fate of his nation, the scripture says that Jesus, Jesus wept. Look at verse 41. But as they came closer to Jerusalem, and Jesus saw the city of head, ahead, he began to weep. He began to weep. The, the word used here by Dr. Luke is the strongest word in the Greek language for weeping. When Jesus saw Jerusalem for the last time through human eyes, he began sobbing in agony, sobbing in agony. Why? Because he wanted peace for his people. He wanted peace for his people, not political peace with its enemies or social peace from within the nation. No, Jesus wanted them to be at peace with God. That's why he wept. He wept for a whole nation of people that had no peace with God. The peace that Jesus wanted for them only comes by way of repentance. It comes only by way of faith in Christ and by believing the message that Jesus preached his entire ministry. I want you to look with me at what Jesus said as the tears dripped from his face. Look at verse 42. Jesus said, I wish that even today you would find the way of peace. That had a huge meaning back then, but it still means something today. I believe he's still saying that. I wish that even today you would find the way of peace. Friends, you won't find the way of peace unless you find Jesus. But if you'll find him and invite him into your heart... You'll find peace. Peace that the world can't give you. Peace that the world doesn't understand. Peace that you can enjoy and it'll make a difference in your life. Look, look at what else he says. I wish that even today you would find, find the way of peace, but now it's too late. He's talking to the people that lived back then. He's talking to the crowd. He's talking to the, the city of Jerusalem. He's talking to the nation of Israel. But now it's too late and, and peace is hidden from you. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you. They will crush you to the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you have rejected the opportunity God offers you. If you know anything about history, you know that in AD 70, Titus, the Roman general, came and he built those ramparts and he crushed that wall and he destroyed that city. That nation fell. Why? Well, they rejected the Lord. 
They rejected Jesus. And you know, I, I really hate to leave you on a sad note, but, but their unbelief had blinded them to the greatest blessing that God has, and that is the salvation of the Lord. They were blind to that. They missed it. They missed him. Scripture actually says they did not recognize it when God came to visit them. They didn't recognize it when God came into their city. Don't miss him. Don't miss the Lord when he comes knocking on your door. When he comes into your space, when he invades you, don't miss him. Well, here's some good news. It was too late for them, but it's not too late for you. Amen? That's the beautiful thing about the Lord. The good news is it's not too late for you. Here's one verse I want you to hang on to. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. For God says, at just the right time, I heard you. On the day of salvation, I helped you. Indeed, God is ready to help you right now. Why? Because today is the day of salvation. Here's what I hope you will do. I've been praying for this all week. Praying that you will let Jesus make peace between you and God. Right now, sin separates some of you. And you, you know, you're, you're, you're miles and miles and miles and sins and sins and sins away from God. But if you'll trust Jesus, he'll bring you back into a right relationship with God. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes back to the Father except through me. Why did Jesus come? To save sinners. I've let him do that for me. I pray that you'll let him do that for you.